0: Uh, the past is not necessarily celebratory. It's not necessarily meant to make us feel, you know, sort of the, I guess, the the sort of patriotic version of history. It makes us proud to be Americans. Uh, it's complicated. It's often very ugly. Uh, but I think that having a sense of history is a part of, you know, understanding, you know, how we got where we are.
1: This episode of Beyond Aporia originated in the Howenstein Center's webcast, Lunch and Learn with Gleaves available at www.gvsu.edu/hc Welcome to the Hallenstein Center's live Q&A webcast, Lunch and Learn. I'm your host Gleaves Whitney. What a time we're living in. The United States is convulsed by a pandemic that has claimed the lives of more than 125,000 victims by unprecedented state-by-state lockdowns by a sudden economic depression that has left almost 15% of our workforce unemployed, by a nationwide conflagration sparked by black man's murder on a Minneapolis street, by widespread calls to defund the police, by mass protests in more than three dozen cities, and by robust debate over which historic figures and symbols in our civic spaces deserve a place in honor, a, de- a place of honor in the United States in 2020, and which do not. It is this last topic that has risen to the forefront of debate in the last couple of weeks. So today I'd like to explore the difference between history and memory. Now, definitions are in order. History is the humanistic discipline and intellectual training and methods to discover what happened in the past. We distinguish it from memory, which is how a diverse community thinks about its collective past, how that community judges what happened, decides what its narrative should be, and assigns praise to the heroes and blame to the villains. Let me put that another way. It's pretty dense definition. Mm -hmm. Academic history results in a contested intellectual reconstruction of the past on its own terms, while our collective memory results in a clash of values and a contested ethical evaluation of what to do with the past in the present. Now that's a lot packed into these definitions. So to help us guide uh, through these polarities between history and memory, I've invited Dr. Shannon Duffy to join us on today's Lunch and Learn. Dr. Duffy grew up in one of America's most historic cities, New Orleans, so she was already exposed to the tensions between history and memory as a child. She currently teaches early U.S. history at Texas State University in San Marcos, a gateway to the beautiful Texas hill country. My conversation with Dr. Duffy will go about 45 minutes or so followed by questions from our viewers, so feel free to begin sending your questions to us right away using your Zoom toolbar to do so. Thank you so much for joining me on today's webcast, Dr. Duffy. Hi, how's it going? It's going great here, although a heat wave, a Texas-style heat wave, is coming up to Michigan, I can tell you that.
0: Okay, now what does Michigan consider hot?
1: <laughs> Anything above 70. Oh. <laughs> well, we have out? a 100 <laughs> yet. We have a lot to talk about, Shannon, and and the danger of uh, getting fellow historians together is going to be very real on today's webcast. I love talking about the stuff that you study and think about. And like you, I spent part of my childhood in New Orleans where you, you can't avoid being immersed in history and memory. So tell us how you became interested in the communal memory of New Orleans growing up there and in academic history once you got to, say, high school school or college. That's funny
0: because I thought you were going in a different direction, but um, it's we
1: could go in your direction. It's
0: it's all right. Uh, If you would think coming from New Orleans, I would have studied New Orleans history. I mean, wouldn't that be the obvious? And and yes, New Orleans is one of those cities, uh, unlike, I think, Houston, unlike Atlanta, uh, which tend to be very much about the new. uh, New Orleans tends to revere things just because they're old, you know, even if it's an old grocery store, uh, anything. Um, but when I first got interested in history, I, I studied Boston. Uh, and I think that it was, you know, as a little kid, I was fascinated with New England because it was everything New Orleans was not. It was cold. I, I never saw snow until I was 18 years old and went to UVA. Uh, when I went to tour the campus, the first time I ever saw snow. Uh, so I have actually got involved uh, studying the revolution in Boston. So I've really been, as a historian, there's sort of been two cities that I've Really focused on first Boston and Philadelphia. It's only recently that I've actually, you know, I grew up in an incredibly historic city that uh, I somehow didn't really uh, spend a lot of time uh, uh, investigating. I did have one. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. You had another question.
1: No. Uh, where did you think my question was going? And feel free to answer oh, that. Oh, oh, oh
0: monuments. See, yeah, but that's
1: okay. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna get uh, no, there.
0: I, I was actually though there is one project that I was involved in. I my um. I uh, went to uh, my, my, I went undergrad at Emory in Atlanta, and then I sort of boomerang back to New Orleans, mainly because of money. Uh, and so I went to the University of New Orleans, and I studied Warren Billings. And at the time I was at UNO, they had made an amazing discovery. It's the kind of stuff historians absolutely live for. They thought that they had lost the records of the Louisiana State Supreme Court. And then they were renovating an old building, and they discovered that they were in the attic. The whole time. And this is from the time that Louisiana was bought, purchased 1803 to the beginning of the Civil War. So obviously incredibly important records. But the way the records were preserved, uh, they've been in boxes. Uh over time the windows had broken, the pigeons had flown in, the pigeons had, been, uh-huh. as pigeons do, for decades. And pigeon dung had actually encased the records. Uh, and so when you went through, Billings put all these grad students to work, uh you, you actually had tools. We didn't have a mask, which would have been a good idea. But you had a little feather duster. You turn the page, dust, feather. And the case that I got assigned, he had all this transcribing, was the case of a guy named Francois. Uh, he was a skilled slave. He was a hatter. And it was a manumission case. Uh, and so he actually, he was told he was worth $800. So he would earn that. And of course, skilled slaves working out were really a different category entirely. I mean, he had his own place and he sort of sent wages back, Uh, but he would get right up to about the $700 mark, and then he'd get sold and he'd have to start again. And this happened three times. Then he sued for his freedom. And I remember walking in the French Quarter, and all the addresses are still there. And I could see, here's the first master. Here's the second owner, and there's a third one across the street. In other words, they're passing around like a hot potato. Uh, And so in some ways, I think coming from New Orleans, I've always had, you know, I think it's very important to have that sense of the past being all around you and not just the pretty parts of the past, which I think.
1: Very good distinction. Uh, To
0: the the, the monuments. Uh, The past is not necessarily celebratory. It's not necessarily meant to make us feel, you know, sort of the, I guess, the, the sort of patriotic version of history, it makes us proud to be Americans. Uh, it's complicated, it's often very ugly. Uh, but I think that having a sense of history is a part of you know, understanding you know, how we got where we
1: are. Well, you and I have some common experiences having grown up at least part of my childhood there in New Orleans. For example, on the streetcar, I always went around Lee Circle. And New Orleans was one of the first cities to be impacted by these debates over statues. Tell us what happened there in New Orleans in terms of history and memory.
0: Well, they, have, they actually took down four statues in New Orleans and they took them down uh, kind of in order of uh, offensiveness, I guess you would say, in other words, they went after the most offensive statue first. Uh, and this statue was a statue to the Battle of, what is called the Battle of Liberty, uh, Liberty Place. Uh, and, you know, it's sort of like, well, who in the world could defend? So, yeah, I'm actually crazy enough. I'm about to try to defend the, 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 the monument to the Battle of Liberty Place. Uh, this is a monument that commemorates a massacre, and it commemorates a military coup of a lawful government. That's basically what is happening in, in 1874. Uh, you had probably a little less than 3,000 people defending the city of New Orleans, most of whom were free people of color in the state militia. Uh, led by the greatest uh, scalawag of all time, Longstreet, who had switched sides, uh, and they never forgave him for that one. Uh, And outside the countryside, pretty much uh, a local version of the Klan had taken over, pretty much the rest of Louisiana. Uh, And they'd done this through really terror. Um, I'd say in my class, the Klan was the first terrorist organization, really. Uh, And so New Orleans was surrounded uh, and when the battle, as it were, came, uh, the uh, folks who were, it was basically the Metropolitan Police and the uh, the, the mostly uh, freedmen uh, state militia uh, were outnumbered over two to one. And they say officially 60 people died. Uh, numbers are probably far higher. Uh, it, it's a coup. It was basically a coup. Uh, so, you know, and then they put this rather ugly obelisk up to commemorate, uh, you know, having you know, saved the city. They didn't save it for very long. But uh, even though uh, the people who took over were thrown out a couple of years later, that's pretty much the end of Reconstruction in Louisiana. That that was pretty much the Redeemers taking back over, uh, and they put this ugly, uh, ugly obelisk. No, nobody could defend this obelisk in, artistically. It's pretty darn ugly, um, and it's uh, it's commemorating a really ugly thing. So why in the world wouldn't we take it down? Well, I. Had never heard of what I just told you. Most people have never heard of what I just told you. But you know, growing up and walking around and going, What is this thing? You hear the story. Uh, and I think in some ways, you know, the monuments, not not the not the modern ones, but the ones in the 1890s, those are not civil war monuments. Those are reconstruction monuments. And reconstruction is a time period that I think emotionally we have a real temptation to forget. Uh, it's, it's not a time period people really want to talk about. It is a really ugly time period, but I think it is important to remember. Once you get rid of the monument, it's easier to sort of pass over the memory. Uh, another thing you would ask about me growing up in New Orleans. When I grew up in New Orleans, there was a restaurant down there. I don't, I was actually trying to find out right before this if it still says this. Uh, but there's a restaurant down there that's called Miss Barra's Slave Auction. And it was the Slave Auction. And I remember being a little kid thinking, that happened. I mean, you know, that right where I'm standing, people were sold. Uh, and, you know, I think, that, again, it's, you know, history and the sort of physical legacy of the past aren't necessarily celebrations, even if the person who put up the monument or the people, uh, that's the way they meant it. That's not necessarily the way that it needs to be seen by us. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I think that, that in some ways, it is very important to remember uh, and you know, in some ways, the answer with the monuments, easy one is, well, we'll just put them in a museum. Uh, well, that's sort of like you know that that oversized uh, portrait that Aunt May gave you. You don't, you know, you don't know what to do with it.
2: Uh, I can't get rid of
0: it. It's a picture of the family man. Is it ugly? Uh, so you shove it in the closet. If Americans went to museums, we wouldn't have the lousy historical memory that we had in the first place. Uh, in some ways, that's right. uh, the United States, you know, unlike some countries, we just, we don't have very much historical memory. Sometimes that's not a really bad thing. Some places have too much historical memory. Northern Ireland springs to mind. Uh, but then you also get, you know, people saying, wait, there were slaves in the White House? Wait, slaves built the White House? Like I was remember at the time thinking, how could you not know that? What did you think that General Washington was out there with his shovel?
1: <laughs> well, were they? Let's, you know, you mentioned the four monuments in New Orleans, were these monuments deconstructed, put away by democratic process and debate? Or was there ever, say, the pressure of a group of people coming in there and saying, tear this down, or we'll deface it, or whatever? Sort of.
0: And that would get me more into New Orleans politics, and I don't study 20th century New Orleans politics. It was done by the city council. Uh, So it wasn't, they were just pulled down in the middle of the night. Uh, There was a lot of popular resistance to it. Uh, There had been a poll, the poll overwhelmingly. Like I said, the Lee statue was by far the most popular of the bunch. It had been there for 161 years. I mean, they're all old. As a historian, I tend to just like old things. Uh, But but it 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 wasn't done like a mob in the middle of the night, that kind of thing. It was actually done through the city council.
1: Okay. So let's go back now to Boston. You said something very intriguing a few minutes ago. How exactly did you become so interested in 18th century America and the founders?
0: I really, the, the ideals of that time period, I think, are why I love the 18th century. And I also think that's why the 18th century is, uh, gets such an emotional response from people and why people get still so angry about it. Uh, you know, in some ways, the 18th century's ideals are our ideals. I mean, it's the beginning of our ideals. You know, the 17th century. 17th century is tribal. Uh, and I mean that in the sense of, you know, you look at like the people war. It's like, you know, God will bless my smiting sword and I will smite all those heathens and they will all die. Uh, and they, they if you think they talk terribly about the Indians. They talk pretty much the same way about the Dutch and the French and for that matter, the Virginians. Uh, yeah, they're, they're a very alien time period.
2: But uh,
0: we just freeze. Uh, but the 18th century, you know, is... You know, I think in some ways, like, you know, Jefferson being an extremely good example of this, why people have such strong emotions about Jefferson. uh, The fact that the guy who wrote All Men Created uh, Created Equal owned about 120 slaves at the time he wrote it, would not upset people so much if that phrase had not mattered so much in American history. Uh, It is that that contradiction of that time period that I think makes it such an interesting time period to uh, study.
1: Well, as a group the founders are so hard to you know corral into a particular religion or anthropology or ideology say, their vision of republican government They're a really diverse group of people give viewers an idea of the diversity of the founders please
0: oh okay i i, I told my class i said you could actually probably use the founding fathers as a, a personality test like a roshaw test like which one do you like Do you like general washington alexander hamilton uh, I was flabbergasted when Hamilton turned into, like, this pop figure through a, through a musical because he is the most aristocratic of the bunch. Uh, you know, I, I sort of, uh, and anybody who does research will, will relate. If you study people long enough, you eventually start dreaming about them. During my dissertation, I showed my new computer system to Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Hutchinson, uh, and John Adams.
2: Uh,
0: and, uh, you know, and Ben Franklin was the only one who got it. Uh he's the only one who got technology. Sort of similarly, I think if all the founders, Hamilton would be the one person who would look at the United States and be like happy about the way that we came out. Like he wanted us to be a superpower. Uh, you know, he basically looked at Great Britain and, and said, we can beat them at their own game. We can be the military behemoth, we can be the, the trade behemoth. But he was aristocratic as can be. Uh, which is kind of funny because in some ways he comes from the very lowest background of all the founders. even more than Ben Franklin Ben Franklin at least was born to honest parents. Uh, Hamilton's the child of no one. Um, he's completely and utterly self-made and he's a complete snob. Uh, you know Jefferson is basically a Virginia aristocratic you know, you know born to wealth and he married well. the best way to get money in the 18th century is to marry well um, But, uh, but definitely an aristocrat and you know he's the one playing populist and he did it very deliberately. I always love the image of him as president, uh, basically answering the door in his robe and fuzzy slippers. And the, the European diplomat standing there, the president's opening the door himself. But that's very calculated. Um, I'm a man of the people, he says, drinking his fine French wine. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, they were diverse in their religious beliefs, weren't they?
0: They were. I, I would say most of them are uh, My, I started with John Adams. And so it always kind of strikes me as, as funny that he's now been kind of co-opted as this very religious figure. He really wasn't. I mean, but he, he comes from, I think he was kind of a, uh, a congregationalist, a Puritan the way I am a Catholic, you know, It was definitely his background, his wife, uh, his, his wife's, his father-in-law was a, was a congregationalist minister. He definitely has that in his background. Um, but uh, but certainly there were people within the country as, as a whole who were I mean, they ran the gamut. Uh, Sam Adams was actually uh, quite uh, quite devout, which I think is not the image we pretend to have of him. Um, yeah. On the other hand, I, I uh, you know, Jefferson, I think, is trying to make up his own religion. Uh, he he, uh, he kind of, and which I think he would have, in that way, he would have fit very well in our own time period. He, he sort of, uh, throughout his life, is, is reading and sampling different religions, and of course, he even trying to basically go through the Bible and found just everything that Jesus said, Uh, and so he could make his own Bible that was just sort of the literal truth.
1: And then you have people like John Jay, uh, John Witherspoon, uh, who Mm -hmm. were quite devout in a traditional Trinitarian sense of being a Christian, unlike, say, John Adams, who's a Unitarian. I mean, you have a whole lot of diversity there. Do you think Tom Paine, for example, was Thomas Paine an atheist? (laughs)
0: Atheist, I go atheist. Yeah, as close uh, there was actually a story who said it was not possible to be an atheist. In the 80s. he said, "Yes, sure it was." Uh, they, they, yeah, I, I think he, he comes the, and they, and also professional, uh, uh, prof, prof, professional malcontent. You've you gotta love a guy who actually gets thrown out of three separate countries. <laughs>
1: yeah. and they, the founders also even have a different anthropology. What I mean by that is some of the founders believe that people of African descent had souls and could be missionized as Christians. Others questioned whether they really were fully human in the sense that they have souls that could be missionized. Very fascinating debate there too.
0: Well, I, I, The people I the people I study are are really not. I mean, I've I've certainly seen the the slaveholders saying stuff. There also, of course, was a little earlier a debate about whether there was a separate creation. Uh, That gets you into that really really creepy Jamaican uh, plantation owner who seems to be doing like human experiments on his plantation uh, to find out like how far down color goes. He's a seriously creepy guy. Um, I think most of the founding fathers. the debate is not so much whether people you know whether they're human or have souls I don't think by this time period uh is whether we can basically live together um and I think I'd like I say I would think one of the reasons Jefferson's so controversial is he really gets himself into a huge amount of trouble because uh you know he, he he he's thinking out loud and he writes everything down uh but when he says basically I tremble for my country it's actually one of the few places in his writing where I see him actually being religious Uh, what he's saying is, if you look at what we did to them, if there is a race war, they're going to win because God's going to side with them because we're in the wrong here. Um, and so, you know, ironically, this is why he thought that you really could not have, uh, coexistence is because in some ways the crimes could never be forgotten. Uh, it's a very interesting thing, uh, to hear somebody in the 18th century say.
1: Well, and, and we have to be careful when we judge Jefferson because of, I believe that statement that you just said was from the 1820 Missouri Compromise. It was his comment about that. But if you go all the way back to the beginning of his career, go back to 1759 to 1765, when he's in the co- colonial, you know, you look at Virginia as a colony in those days and the House of Burgesses. Uh, he, he actually, at, at that time, Uh, or 1769 to 1775, he actually uh, tries to get a bill passed that would free the slaves and educate them and fit them for freedom. And he's laughed out of the house of burgesses. And it goes to show that when we judge people, we always have to look at them within their historical context and the available options that they had. So he's a very complex figure. He had tried to free them. Before he ever penned the words "All men are created equal," and he failed.
0: And he tried to get a condemnation of the slave trade into the Declaration of Independence, and he failed again on that one. Uh, you know, it, 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 it was not going; to, it was not going to fly. But essentially, he brought up uh, that 1820. Of course, both him and John Adams lived long enough to see the, you know, that 1820, which to me is sort of the beginning of the the parade of events that leads to the civil war. Uh, And the fact that both of them actually lived long enough to see it and they both were worried. Uh, And I remember uh, John Adams basically was writing to his son Quincy uh, and said, this is going to lead to a civil war. Um, And so I think in some ways that probably was also, you know, yes, Jefferson does not stay the same, he does not stay static. Uh, You know, the thing about them, you know, Arguing about Lincoln's views. Lincoln does not stay static. Uh, his views shift his, and just like politicians do today. Uh, if you look at politicians on gay rights, you know, where they were, you know, at one point twenty years earlier and where they end up, well, they evolve, they change.
1: Yeah, especially the difference between their their private beliefs and then what they're willing to admit publicly. Exactly. So for example, President Obama with you know same sex marriage, he publicly changed his beliefs. I don't know that we can de- debate really exactly when privately he changed, but clearly there was a public record of his change there. Now, back to the 18th century, okay. early 19th century. So as we go through a few major chapters in early US history, Shannon, let's, let's look at how diversity results in a clash of values and fierce debates that so we have a, a better sense. So many people today just lump them all together. They don't have the nuanced understanding of these differences. So for example, let's take the clash of values at the Second Continental Congress. What was at stake there? Why was there a clash of values?
0: one of the things I say as a revolutionary historian, uh, and and when I teach, it's funny, I I started with Thomas Hutchins, that was my dissertation, and now I'm studying the the Quakers of Pennsylvania. So basically I'm a Tory. Uh, Basically I I tend to land on the loyalists, is that revolutions are incredibly dangerous. And nine times out of 10, they go bad. I mean, you. you end up with uh, you end up with a much worse situation than you did before. Um, and uh, you know, the French Revolution would be demonstrating that 20 years later how how easy it is to go off the rails. And so I actually when it's funny when I start studying the revolution, even though I very you know patriotically sympathetic to you know, I think as a little kid I watched 1776 and all that kind of stuff when I actually study it, I feel like I have a lot of sympathy for the people um, who are, you know, who, who are holding back, uh, which uh, is one of the things I actually try to bring in my class because most people, even my grad students, have always just heard the story from the Patriot point of view.
1: Well, I look at somebody in the Second Continental Congress like John Dickinson, the second, con- for, for viewers who aren't familiar with that Congress, that's the Congress that had to grapple with the Declaration of, of independence. And a complex figure like John Dickinson actually had to sort of figure out, okay, I'm not going to sign the declaration at this point, but I will fight against the British. I mean, talk about nuance. And we totally lose that nuance if we don't study the history of this period. And the reason he was principled, you know, so reluctant, I think following your train of thought, so reluctant to break with the mother country because he, he worried about the long-term implications of that would we forever be at war with the empires of Europe as a result of that move, but willing to get on his horse and fight if they were to invade his state, you know, a fascinating figure. But let's look at, say, the Confederation Congress. Mm -hmm. Uh, Confederation Congress fascinates me because of its, arguably, one of the top three or four pieces of legislation in U.S. history, the Northwest Ordinance. Mm -hmm. What are some of the conflicts out of the Confederation Congress that fascinate you, the clash of values? Well, I mean, one of the things, I haven't
0: studied the Confederation Congress itself that much, but one of the things I find fascinating about that period is a lot of the the recent history basically suggests that if we could have polled correctly, you know, in other words, if you could have had that kind of uh, capacity, uh, no way does the Constitution pass.
2: Uh, it's funny, under
0: and under Texas law, I have to take an oath to uphold the Constitution. I always wonder when I'm teaching this period, am I breaking my oath here? Uh, if I say that, you know, the Articles of Confederation may have gotten a bad rap. Uh, it may actually have been working fairly well for a lot of people, uh, but it wasn't working for the people who were mainly in charge of, not so much money. Money was important, but communication. Uh, and I think in some ways, one of the things that that period shows is the importance of what we would call the media. Um, all the newspapers along the eastern seaboard; very few in the west. Uh, they, not only are they dependent on trade, but they're also just like newspapers today, dependent on advertising, which is trade. Uh, and so, you know, the the people who are unhappy, and also if you look at what they're unhappy about, you know, they complained about Shay's Rebellion. That that was sort of the the argument that helps lead directly to uh, the Constitutional Convention. But if you actually look at what people are really unhappy about, it's the crazy state governments. Uh, It's particularly a state government like Pennsylvania, which has made it extremely easy for debtors to get out of paying their debts. Uh, And the the merchants are extremely unhappy about that. They're unhappy about the fact that New York has decided to start taxing the other uh, imports coming in from the other colonies, and they're making a lot of money off of it. and so as a result, we can't set one uniform trade policy to compete, you know, basically to compete on the world stage with Europe. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's funny. Uh, what I'm saying, of course, is is sort of an argument that was first set in the early 20th century, and it's one of those, I call them uh, the, the zombie theories of history, sort of these undead theories that uh, people keep trying to beat down and they, they won't go away. Um, but I think there is something to it that uh, – that um, the Articles Confederation period is not necessarily as bad as people thought it was, um, but uh, but the reasons it doesn't work in reality may not have been the reasons that were given officially, I guess might be what I'll land on here.
1: <laughs> well, that's right, and, and when you really stop and think about it, I think it was Article 13 in the Articles of Confederation that basically said, you know, there had to be unanimity in adopting any changes to the Articles, and so really it's it's a rogue group of people that that Hamilton and Madison get to to come to to Philadelphia in 1787 what they're doing is really if you're honest about it extra legal I mean I go with illegal (laughs) it was illegal it was that's right I mean they were lawbreakers and the way they crafted the whole thing and this is why they had such resistance and you know the Constitution darn near failed I mean it was a tight race as you got all the states trying to ratify, and you know every lobbying group, you know the Federalists and Anti-Federalists, so it, it had a, a little bit of a, I don't know, a shady beginning, I guess.
0: I always thought it was interesting. You know, it's very hot that
1: summer in Philadelphia,
0: and yet they're meeting with all the windows closed. And uh, at night, when they disperse, the great drinking game will now commence. Of uh, everybody takes the delegates out and tries to get them drunk, and not one of them cracked. Uh, because people were desperate to get rumors of what they were up to for the four months that they were in there. Uh, the other thing I think is interesting is that the other Congress is meeting down the street. It's like, you know, so, you, you know, is it legal, illegal, somewhere gray area? It's not like the Arctic Confederation government doesn't know this is happening. Uh, it, it is weird. That, that unanimity, I always wondered what were they thinking? And a part of that was, it's amazing how fast the, uh, that time period idealizes only a few years earlier, which is sort of the first years of the revolutionary period. Like in 1778, you see them whining about the fact that they're not like they were in 1776, you know, why, why can't we have that unanimity? And I, I think that that might have been part of that, you know, we, everything has to be unanimous to change it, but anybody who's met the Americans, you know, that might have worked for the Dutch. But that—that uh, that was kind of—that was never going to—that was never going to be an effective uh, mechanism. Um, and of course, in some ways, it basically dooms the entire government because you can't tinker with it. You—you you have to change it wholesale, which might be one of the reasons. You know, in some ways, we have a government we can change, but it's very difficult to change. But it's not—you can't change it.
1: Well, you know, it—it it is remarkable. It's—it's—it's it's, it's almost for those people who believe in sort of the providential hand of God in history or numerology, and they look at the fact that John Adams and Thomas Jefferson die on the same day, the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence in 1826, I mean, how does that happen? I, this is this is not the stuff of fiction, this is the stuff of history. But I, Shannon, I'm fascinated by the fact that, so you have, you're right, in Philadelphia, you have the Confederation Congress, um, or, or or the Constitutional Convention in, in Philly in seventeen eighty seven. Well, they're working on, you know, what's gonna be the architecture, the mechanics of our constitutional law and, and the structure of our politics, whereas the Confederation Congress is working on this Northwest ordinance which tells you the cultural conditions that will be necessary for that constitution to work. So you know, religion, morality, knowledge being necessary to good government and the happiness of mankind. Schools and the Means of Education Shall Forever Be Encouraged, that that famous Article Three uh, of the Northwest Ordinance. And they're happening, what the, the Northwest Ordinance is signed in mid-July of 1782, Constitution, Constitution is signed two months later in September. Uh, it's, it's remarkable confluence of brilliant statecraft, uh, of the mechanics of government and the culture of government, uh, a Republican government. Fascinating. Well, let's go now to say uh, anything about the Washington administration wow. that most interests you in your research and in your teaching.
0: Well, I was telling you, because apparently you found me because uh, I wrote this article. It's funny, all the articles that I've written, for some reason, this one about George Washington and the press
2: uh, keeps popping up. And I wrote
0: it ages ago. Uh, you're talking about, you know, in some ways, they are brilliant men, but they're not infallible. They do things and they don't realize, you know, how that's gonna work out. And so one of the things the first administration did under Washington, the first, you know, under the Constitution, uh, is they made newspapers fly freely through, uh, through the US Postal Service. And this creates really the first like explosion of uh, newspapers. And you know, the revolutionary era newspapers might seem, when we're reading them today, uh, you know, pretty rude, you know, pr- pr- pretty cantankerous. Uh, But they were actually very much, uh, they they pretty much worked for the colonial legislatures. And so, you know, the reason they're insulting the king is because their bosses, the colonial legislatures, are are leading the rebellion against England. And, you know, the way that colonial newspapers supported themselves is they printed the laws for the different colonial legislatures. You don't want to make the colonial legislatures angry.
2: Um,
0: So they really, like, even Eves and Gill were not independent. Um, but what you get uh, in the first years of Washington administration is the number of newspapers in the country just explodes. And I sort of, have to, and this is not just my research. I a lot of it comes from uh, Jeff Paisley's really uh, brilliant book on uh, this sort of first generation of newspaper editors. And the thing about newspaper editors is they're little guys. Uh, they're not gentlemen. They're not people who are supposed to be a part of the the sort of civilized conversation of governance.
2: Uh, yeah, they, they
0: they literally, the expression, ink-stained fingers, well, you know, if you worked with the presses, you actually are laying out the letters, uh, and that ink is going to get under your fingernails, and so you're going to you actually, my students love these little details, especially if I teach a class right before lunch, uh, you would clean <laughs> the letters uh, with urine, with human urine, uh, and so it's nasty, and so in some ways, these guys are artisans they have one foot in the artisan, you actually, if you actually worked those presses, you had to really push down, one arm would get bigger than the other arm. So you're kind of, you know, physically disfigured here. So they are not gentlemen. Gentlemen don't work with their hands, but of all the artisans, they're the best educated. You have to be, you have to be able to, not just to read to be able to keep up with events. They hadn't really inserted themselves in the political process up to this point. Ethan Gill actually tried and they got thrown out after the revolution. Um, these guys, this, of course, is one of the things that leads to the Alien and Sedition Acts in Adams' administration. Is you have sort of these new people uh, that are sort of on on the political stage. Uh, they certainly are, were not. Uh, they were not nonpartisan. They saw themselves as very much partisan. I mean, they, they, they were push- They were part of. You know, they were a proponent of their view. Uh, you know, Peter Porcupine was, uh, you know, Federalist. Uh, ben Franklin's grandson was sort of sort of an arch Democratic Republican. Um, but, uh, you know, they, they, they were rude, And, and the stuff they printed, uh, which of course I think is one of the things that's very relevant today when we talk about, you know, what can and cannot be said or printed or now on the internet and people will say, well, but you know, you shouldn't have things that are damaging, that are just so, uh, you know, like hate speech. Well, there's never been a time when you tried to suppress, uh, free speech that people thought it was, you know, just the stuff that we disagreed with. It was always something that was utterly poisonous to our very essence. Uh, and the thing about Washington administration I really try to stress in my classes: is this is an incredibly fragile country. You can't look at it with hindsight. It's not a superpower. It's a teeny tiny little country. Uh, and uh, they are watching across the pond an ancient, much more culturally sophisticated country. Their oldest enemy, then their friend, uh, just fall apart. Absolutely fall apart. And so you know when the Federalists say you know if the Democrat Republicans get in charge they will put Washington on the guillotine I think they meant it uh, you know and and when they talk about you know in the, the years leading up the Alien Nation Act that these newspaper presses saying and they were a little bit more restrained Washington administration by the time you get to Adams he's in the pay of the British what we call fake news uh, you know he's in the, he's actually in the pay of the British uh, at one point. Um, during the election of 1800, a rumor circulated that Jefferson was dead, uh, you know, so uh, it, there, there was a real feeling that, um, that, that the newspapers were dangerous uh, and that there had to be a limit, there had to be some limit on what you could say, especially if the most extreme of Democrat Republican uh, editors might be in the pay of the French. The funny thing is, some of them were in the pay of the French. Uh, so uh, I, I do think that that whole, I'm sorry, I've gone completely around the circle just now, um, but uh, that sort of fight about where the line between free speech is and, you know, libel, which was a huge thing in the 18th century. Uh, which really starts in Washington's administration and then sort of culminates in Adams's with the, the Alien and Sedition Acts, which he then will be lambasted for pretty much for all eternity after that. Uh, it was a real big part of both administrations of, you know, is there a point at which we have to respect the, um, the dignity of this very new, very fragile government? Um, you know, what, where is the, where is the line? I think also the fact that you have these, these people who are not seen as a part of sort of what was assumed to be the kind of people that were supposed to be involved in politics, uh, that they were getting involved. This was also alarming. One thing I want to mention about Ben Franklin Bach, and of course, nobody's entirely sure how that guy pronounced his name. Uh, he actually dropped down out of the gentleman class, which I always found fascinating. He is a gentleman. He's been Franklin's grandson. He was raised in France. He speaks French as well as English. Uh, and uh, he married well and all that stuff. And, and but he didn't want to be a gentleman. And he actually sort of deliberately kind of made himself over as an artisan, uh, kind of made himself unacceptable uh, to the point where uh, when he died, uh, his widow who took over the presses, thank you very much, uh, married one of those crazy Irish radicals uh, and was no longer accepted in society. Uh, So, yeah, I always thought it was interesting, he kind of removed removed himself back uh, into another class.
1: Isn't that one of the glories of studying history, Shannon? That nothing fits a predictable pattern necessarily. I mean, you've got types, but the human will is infinitely malleable and fascinating. You never can tell where people are going to go next. And, you know, we have the license to read other people's mail and to see their innermost thoughts. And it's just fascinating what they do. I, I, it's one of the reasons I love history. History is a foreign country, as David Hackett Fisher and others have said. And the farther we go back, the more fascinating it is. And We see that there's really not that much that separates our essential human nature from theirs. Well, you've mentioned the Alien and Sedition Acts a couple of times, Shannon. What, what's wrong with them?
0: Well, it, it, it's funny, you know what we think is wrong with them and what people thought was wrong with them at the time tend to be two different things. Uh, Alien Act, which, uh, it's funny, it doesn't seem to have ever actually been put into place, but just the fact that it was written was a chilling effect. So the Alien Act, which is by far the less well-known, I actually had a grad student studying that one, so everybody talked about the Sedition Act. What happened with the Alien Act? Well, the short version is it was never used. Um, But essentially what happens with the Alien Act, it's, you know, what people tend to know about it is, that it extends the length of time it takes to become a US citizen. What's less stressed is that while you're not a citizen, the president on his own authority can throw you out of the country. Uh, and like I said, it doesn't have, seem to have been used, but just, just that threat being put out there, uh, A lot. there were several editors who voluntarily left the country or didn't come to begin with, um, and others that might have toned it down a little bit. Uh, the Sedition Act, um, is, sedition is like treason light because treason is defining the Constitution, uh, but it's so vague. It basically, if you cast, uh, cast disrespect at the government, you are guilty of sedition. And so you have like this one story, uh, and I'm not gonna get this story right because I'm blanking on it at the moment, uh, but, but essentially, President Adams was on a donkey in a parade and somebody shot off a cannon and the donkey reared up as donkeys do and, and put you know his rotundity on his backside. Uh, and somebody in a pub drank President Adams' ass. <laughs> And uh, which, of course, has in that story, particularly, which they all knew more than one meaning, uh, and he got, he got called up for it. So you did, it wasn't necessarily an editor that was uh, printing stuff in the newspapers. that You could just say something in a pub that was rude. Uh, what we tended to find it very much, you know, today, it's really the first big fight about just where is the limit of the First Amendment. Uh, and what a lot of people don't know is the First Amendment is a work in progress. It's really not until the 20th century. That it has the incredibly expansive meaning that it has today. Uh, if you look at what they what they thought they were writing when they wrote it, you know, uh, 1791 would be actually the Bill of Rights. Uh, it's no prior restraint. In other words, you don't have a government censor standing over your press and going, "Yes, that is acceptable. You can start press. You can start printing." Uh, no, you can still get in trouble afterwards. Uh, and by the way, you know, Washington was alive to see the Aliens Edition Acts being written, and he approved of them. Uh, and they weren't actually at the time that different from the existing libel laws, which is, you know, you can get in trouble after it goes to the press. Uh, public figures still have their reputation as gentlemen. And a reputation in the 18th century had a value, you know, in a time period when you borrowed not from banks but from other human beings. Your reputation had a financial value. Um, what was upsetting people at the time wasn't so much that as it was how incredibly partisan it was that the only people that they went after, you had federalists who were writing crazy, bully newspapers as well, but the president basically had an enemies list and immediately uh, started going after the leading Democrat, Republican news editors. Uh, and so in some ways it, it was more the partisanness uh, of the law. Uh, of course, now we look back and it basically is sort of the first big fight about, you know, the the role of the role of the newspapers particularly uh for the state um and uh and also it it totally completely and utterly massively backfired because they did under the Sedition act go after a, a handful of newspaper editors they ruined them i mean again these are little guys those newspapers always ran on the brink of bankruptcy and so arrest him throw him in jail close down his press that press is going under but they made martyrs out of them and they actually end up with more opposition newspapers at the beginning than they had before.
1: To what extent, you know, what we're talking about, Shannon, makes me ask this next question. You know, we have this term, we call it the rough and tumble of democracy. And Americans have taken to the streets, you know, since the revolution. I mean, we all know about everything from the Boston Tea Party, the Boston Massacre, uh, so many events in our our, our communal memory. Has have to do with people saying enough and we're going to the streets. So how how typical is it in American history for Americans to go out and protest, even people we Very would typical. consider patriots today?
0: Very typical. It's, it's always been. We've always been rowdy. Uh, and, you know, and actually, if you go back further, that, that is also a part of the British experience, uh, you know, they, in some ways, even in a monarchy, when I teach the revolutionary period, and as I said, I started with Hutchinson, the royal, last royal governor of Massachusetts, uh, and one of the things that he wrote uh, to, to the king is he said, uh, mobs or type of them have always been a part of, have always been legal." how I put it. Uh, in a way, it's sort of like you had a monarchical system that didn't allow a certain segment of the population to have a political voice. You kind of have to have a safety valve for them. They're, they're going to they're gonna get rowdy on occasion. Uh, and London saw rioting on a regular basis. Uh, at the time, and one of the things I find interesting as a revolutionary historian is that uh, the non-importation acts, which we would call boycotts, were far more radical. And they say they, they freaked out Parliament, and really it was Parliament far more than the King until really the war starts. Uh, but they freaked out the British far more than rioting. Rioting is sort of, you know, the that, that, that rioting is what happens, you know, it's what happens when the, the common people get a little bit too much to drink and uh, hit the streets. Um, what was upsetting about the non-importation was, first of all, it was an attack on British mercantilism. Uh, the British conceived, especially in the 18th century, conceived of their empire as a commercial empire. Uh, and there is a very strong link between the commerce of the empire and the military strength of the empire. And so if you hit at the, the commercial health, uh, it's an attack. But it's also a very sort of cool, deliberate attack, and it clearly has the hand of local authority behind it. In other words, it's not, you can't blame it on uh, drunken dock workers. Uh, and you mentioned the Tea Party. The Tea Party is the opposite of the riot. I always stress how amazingly organized. First of all, it was never called that until the 19th century, and that's a way of defanging it. Uh, calling it the Tea Party was the early 19th century's way of separating it from the immigrant. Uh, again, you were starting to see periods of protest, and they wanted to, you know, there's not the, what we were doing back then is nothing like what you guys are doing now. Uh, and so this was a way of sort of making it cute and quaint, but it's not a riot. I mean, they left with military precision. They very carefully, think about the amount of work it took all night long to get all of those like something like 40 tons of tea. I don't actually remember. I know it's like three million dollars in today's money worth of tea. Uh, it took them all night. And of course this stuff's in the hole of the ship. So they have to haul these big old boxes up onto the deck, open them, dump the tea overboard. Uh, they don't hurt or break anything else on any of the, ship, uh, on the ships except the tea uh there's like one lock that got broke and the, the captain got a iou in the mail later for the broken lock sorry we broke we had to break one of the locks to get the we couldn't get the box up um but you know and it starts from faneuil hall it starts from the boston town meeting and that means at least the town government if not the colonies' government is implicated. That's the colonial leaders. That's why. That's why the Coercive Acts are basically written Like that's it. You know, you, you've now gone too far. Uh, it was the destruction of private property, but I think it also was that this was a much. In some ways, it was a not. It was a non-riots act. It, it was a much more deliberate uh, provocation.
1: And and over the slightest of taxes in historic perspective. Okay.
0: All right, so it ain't about the tax. It's actually, it's a, it's a, I always thought when the modern Tea Party happened, I thought it was funny because do they know that they've named themselves for a tea cut, uh, for a tax cut, not a tax rise, but a tax cut. Uh, in some ways, I actually, I really admire the paper. They made, uh, they made a hard argument and they sold it really well. Which is, you know, the Stamp Act. Was not a huge tax either i always correct my undergrads I'm like oh they're going to oppress us with these huge taxes i'm like you want a sales tax it's something that had already existed in england they were just extending it to us it was the principle of things this is the problem with a precedent-based government if you allow them to pass a tiny little tax a year from now 10 years from now 20 years from now you've given up the principle and they could come back so it's about what they might do it's about fear uh so they tried the stamp act they got their hands slapped they, that went away. They tried again with the and duties, hand slapped, that went away. And then they, you know, the Tea Act was a and duty. It had already been left on the books. And this is basically both sides digging in their heels, which in some ways and Edmund or- Morgan said from the Stamp Act forward, uh, both sides really don't move. They, they both stake out their position and dig in their heels and they really don't move. Um, they, they repeal four of the five and duties. They leave the tax on tea to make a statement. Just because we couldn't enforce his tax doesn't mean we were wrong. Um, And then they go on their merry way, and then the East India Company gets in financial trouble. It is like the AIG of of the 18th century. It's too big to fail. Uh, There's been some really cool books about the East India Company recently that have established pretty clearly that it had nothing to do with America. They were just being grossly mismanaged. Uh, They blamed it on the American protest movement, and that was them. Um, but they couldn't be allowed to fail. They could have taken the British government down with them financially if they failed. And so they get this brilliant idea. Well, what we're gonna do is allow them to sell directly t- to America. And that means that the, the tea, even with the tax on it is cheaper. Basically what they've created is an invisible tax. The tax is invisible. Uh, you will buy the tea and you will not know you're paying a tax. Uh, and the Patriots do a very successful, kind of a conspiracy theory. Uh, which is that this is a trick. Now, i, I looking at it think, not Parliament, you're giving them way too much credit. They're just fumbling about. But the argument was it's a trap because they tried one thing and it didn't work and they waited a couple of years and then they tried something else. Okay, that didn't work. Okay, let's try this third route. But this is all a pre, uh, it, it, was, it, it was, you know, it, they, they had planned this, uh, that they were going to keep testing until they snuck a tax in to lay the groundwork. Um, and, uh, you know, in some ways that's, you know, in terms of PR, that's not sort of the easiest argument to make. Uh, one thing that's interesting is that they made it, you know, in some ways, uh, by going after how important, how important consumer goods and tea in particular had become to people. Uh, it, it's sort of like when, when you're buying things, that you can't necessarily afford the uncomfortableness that you have with that, That sometimes you can put that on the item itself. And so around the time of the tea act, you actually see a tax on tea as tea, uh, you know, that, that it, it's nasty for you, it's bad for your health, you know, it causes everything from constipation to impotence. Uh, there you go, as he's got Watch his tea out.
1: before me. My cup of is uh, always with me.
0: <laughs> but, you know, and that played, of course, emotionally uh, very well into, you know, the idea that if you're giving up things, uh, you're, showing, uh, you're showing your virtue in doing that.
1: It's fascinating. It really is. And as I recall, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't the, the the Boston Tea Party also inspired by the dissatisfaction with the range of goods? In other words, weren't, weren't the colonists unhappy with that they didn't have much choice in the tea because the, the, the British government restricted the the flow of tea, the East India Company, there, there were not a lot of different choices.
0: Well, they, they, were, they were actually drinking Dutch tea. They actually liked the Dutch tea better.
1: The Dutch tea was okay.
0: cheaper, and they also liked it better. Uh, and so, in some ways, what the Tea Act is trying to do is get that market back. Yeah, okay. Um, but there's actually been a couple of recent things that have said we're not paying enough attention to the monopoly aspect of that yes. market. That, uh, that, you know, monopoly to them didn't mean what it means to us. Basically, what it is, is one group of people are given the exclusive right to sell a particular item of goods. And this was that already existed for a few things, but this was a big expansion. That you know, the East India Company. One of the ways that this was going to work financially, that their tea would have been cheaper, is they were being given an exclusive right to sell the tea, and certainly that would have driven all the other tea merchants out of business. But a lot of those guys are selling smuggled Dutch tea, which they're not supposed to be doing anyway. Um, but yeah, the Dutch tea, I think, really had kind of cornered the market. But what is interesting, by the time you get into the real big protest, is the old that is that people and I just watched a couple of days ago. Um, Mary Beth Norton did a talk on 1774 for the, the Massachusetts Sport Society. And she was talking about how, uh, eventually the only way to make sure you're not drinking the evil English tea is not drink a tea at all. Uh, so even the Dutch tea is, is no good because it could be, it could be that English tea. And so then it really sort of becomes more symbolic that, you know, we are just going to bring the tea into the, you know, everybody brings their tea and throws it in a big pile and sets it on fire. And we just basically are going to abstain from the tea and drink Sassafras or various other god-awful concoctions that they came up with. They did not have coffee. Uh, Coffee seems to be an early 19th century thing. If they they knew it, they didn't like it. So they, they were stuck with all kinds of homemade medicinal things
1: to drink. Well, you just mentioned the word monopoly a minute ago, and you said that, that we can have uh, sort of misunderstanding of the words as they were used in the 18th century compared to the way those same words are used today. And you also talked, Shannon, about uh, one of the names of the states, you know, the, our tiniest state, and how we have a different view of you know, what Rhode Island means. Rhode
0: Island and Providence Plantation.
1: Yes. Please talk a little bit about that.
0: I was not happy that they changed that name because it is kind of misunderstanding. Uh, first of all, the whole thing's not an island, which is why it was brought out in right. plantation. Uh, plantation just mean fa- meant farm. It's just a term that meant farm. I, obviously, it, it took on another meaning later in time. Uh, but our name at the time of the revolution, uh, the official name for all 13 colonies was His Majesty's Plantations in America. Uh, it's, it just basically means a big farm. Uh, it doesn't really have anything to do with a, a farm that's being run by slave trade. Now, of course, Rhode Island has a huge involvement in slavery, but it's not because they have big old plantations. Uh, it's because they are huge in the slave trade as as uh, as a shipping uh, as a shipping power.
1: Any other words that you're fascinated with from the 18th century that we oh. tend to misunderstand today?
0: Oh, you, you well, you know that
1: during the constitutional.
0: Uh, debates or the debates uh, I don't remember if it was Bale and what it was not original to me somebody said you know that the, the, the that and of course it's, I think it's an expression about the British and the Americans being separated by a common language uh, but they are talking past each other they really are you know using the same expressions uh, and meaning things completely differently uh, I think it's inter- you know virtual representation uh, you know they, they I think the parliament literally does not get when the Americans are saying we are not, and by the way, oh, Americans would be a good one too. Uh, we were the Americans uh, to the British. That's right, somebody asked once, you know, who was the first person to call this group of people the Americans? It seems to be England, uh, and it seems to be around the 1750s. Uh, you don't really see Americans saying Americans until right about the time of the Revolution. Uh, but when the Americans uh, are talking about representation, they really have over 150 years invented something completely different than the way it works over in England. And so they're really talking past each other. The way I explain it in my classes is, you know, in the British Parliament system, uh, first of all, even at the time of the revolution, only 15% of the British population has the right to vote. It's property based. Uh, It's property based in colonial America as well, but we just have a much more expansive property, much larger segment of the population is property only.
2: Um,
0: So first of all, only 15% can vote. And then secondly, the borders of where different members of parliament come from came from that incredibly higgly bigly long English history. And so you had, for example, areas that would be electing a member of parliament that now is a lake. Because over time, the the water came in, and that whole area is now a lake. And so whoever happens to own the property where the lake is, is the guy who picks the member of parliament. Uh, Meanwhile, places like Manchester, Liverpool, these big towns, don't necessarily have representation because they're new. Um, And so, yeah. When, you know, when you are a member of the House of Commons, so let's say Lancashire, uh, our late, uh, is picking a member of Parliament, all he has to be is a commoner. He just can't have a title. And he does not represent Lancashire. He represents everywhere, all commoners everywhere in the empire, including America, all commoners everywhere. They think in those terms, you know, king, aristocracy, everybody else. what we, and we, we seem like we made it up as we were going along, which is the case with a lot of colonial American history. Uh, the stuff I read basically said it may be basically England, England at the county level, which is what most of the American leaders in the first generations would have known. They weren't really from the top strata, they were sort of local leaders. Um, basically, I don't know, uh, Travis, uh, which of course is not a, a very good Virginia name, uh, but say you're, you're coming from the a county of Travis, the guy has to live there. And then he will actually go to the House of Burgesses representing Travis. And furthermore, all the towns will be sending very explicit instructions to him. Do this. Don't do that. Uh, A lot of times, one or two year terms of service. So we grow up. And remember, the oldest two colonies or provinces are 150 years old by the time of the revolution. They have a lot of institutional memory themselves. Uh, They basically have developed and worked out a completely different understanding of what it means to be represented. And so they're they're talking past each other.
1: Very very good point. Well, a young person recently told me quite brashly mm-hmm. that when she considers all the serious challenges that you know we Americans are currently facing, she doesn't really care what the founders thought. So what would you say to her?
0: Well, first of all, our government is, is uh, established by this generation, and we do have a very weird government. Uh, it is interesting that the other democracies that came along afterwards. If they imitate anybody, they usually imitate Great Britain, then, for all that we think our, our government is all that, not too many people have imitated us, um, but uh, we have that this, this a physical piece of paper that was written at a particular moment in time, but that is, you know, for better or for worse, that is the highest law of the land, and so, you know, we, we kind of, they kind of uh, inserted themselves in the future, if you will. Uh, you know, what they meant by things still has a very strong legal meaning for one thing. Um, but you also, I, I think that understanding this time period uh, is necessary to understand um, a lot of the fights that are still very much going on, um, certainly things like the Electoral College. And you know, personally, I actually think a, a lot of the concerns that they had in 1787 are still very valid. I've certainly on Facebook and other places, uh, seen a lot of people just get rid of the Electoral College. Well, the reason the Electoral College was established in the first place uh, was that they thought it would be easier for a demagogue to swing a popular election. And I'm not sure that they were necessarily wrong. Uh, You might, you know, they certainly, uh, there's been a lot of times, not just in 2016, where people have been very unhappy the popular vote and the Electoral College vote have gone in two different directions. Um, but, but it was designed like that because the thinking was, it would actually be easier for somebody, um, to come along and command on emotion, uh, and, you know, to, to end up getting somebody in office that basically is appealing to people's, I guess, of course, instinct, she might say. Uh, and so it was, it was meant to be a break.
1: Again, fascinating, a very different, uh, view and we have viewers, by the way, Shannon who are queued up. Now to ask uh, questions, okay. let's bring them into our conversation.
0: Okay, sure enough.
1: One of the questions I'm looking at actually goes, you know, towards sort of an aristocratic view of the world and governing uh-huh. and, and what you're talking about with the Electoral College. So the, the question from Wesley Reynolds uh-huh. is, would Dr. Duffy please respond to this enlightenment idea of an, arist- an aristocracy of the mind, mm-hmm. a natural aristocracy of talent and virtue, and how this idea intersected with the Republic of Letters in Europe. What a question. That's a
0: question. It's an excellent question. And you know, the phrase cosmopolitan is still controversial. And another one you could eat from this time period is secular humanism, uh, which really is, is them as well. Uh, yeah. Alexander Hamilton, it would have to be an aristocracy of the mind because he wouldn't be an aristocrat in anybody else's aristocracy.
2: Uh, you know, and
0: I remember reading some things about, you know, England in the 18th century that until, you know, sort of the early modern era, to be an aristocrat is simply you don't have to be uh, educated, you could be utterly illiterate, and you don't necessarily have to uh, be uh, mannered, uh, you don't necessarily have to be hygienic, uh, you're an aristocrat, because you're born an aristocrat, and because you own all this land, which comes with income. Uh, but that, you know, by the 18th century, this is not enough, especially, you know, as, as the commercial classes are rising in power. So they find something else. What separates, you know, what separates us from them? Uh, and so you get sort of in the 18th century, this sort of stress on sensibility. Uh, you know, that, that you have sort of elevated ideals. But I think it's kind of interesting, you know, it's sort it, of, think of an earlier time period with your drunken lord, the expression you know, a drunk, drunk is a lord, uh, you know, he, he, he could be utterly slovenly, he could be utterly uh, a lout, uh, he's still the lord. Yeah. You know, he doesn't have to prove uh, his worthiness. Uh, in some ways, I think it kind of comes from a place of, uh, of uh, insecurity. Um, but, uh, but, the Republic of Letters is really an interesting time period because they really are seeing themselves as an alternate to, uh, you know, being English, being French, being American. Uh, it is, you know, we are sharing this sort of common knowledge project and common set of ideals for the most part. Uh, and that's where our first loyalty lies. Uh, and uh, it's, it's a very powerful impetus. it's credit for three revolutions. Uh, whole whole rash of social movements, not s- some of which they might not have approved of, um, but uh, you know, it, it, it was it was a very radical idea for its time, uh, and uh, I think it's, it's and like I said, one going back to why I said the 18th century. I think the 18th century is uh, is always so contentious uh, because it is still very much with us, and we're still very much arguing about a lot of the same ideas uh, that they were arguing about. Well.
1: We have another question that comes in from a viewer, which is fascinating, and it has to do with the creation of the idea of race, and mm-hmm. there's been recent work which, uh, now I'm, this is not in the question, I'm ad living a little yeah. bit here okay. to set it up, but there has been recent work that has talked about the extent to which leading enlightenment thinkers, Voltaire, Hume, mm-hmm. and others, uh, believed that there was a sort of a, a Peck order. Uh, of races, uh, superior and inferior races in the 17th and 18th centuries. Do you want to address that?
0: Well, it, it was one of the things they were arguing about. Um, I, I mean, I tell my students, um, it, they were, even at the time of the revolution, still arguing about whether the Native Americans were white or not. Uh, they were, you know, whether they, they you know, there were still people who were saying, no, they're really just tan, you know, bring them to England, see if they fade. Uh, then they caught consumption and died. And so that, experiment didn't tend to work, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, it, it, I, it, it is very, it is not something that was settled in the 18th century. And again, I think this is one of the reasons that people uh, often are angry, I guess, at a lot of the enlightenment figures is because they are talking about these high ideals that have had, that actually have had such an important effect on history. Uh, and then when you find them falling short, when you find that like Adam Smith uh, had stock in the, the slave company, uh, that he basically was getting money off of the international slave trade, uh, it, it frustrates and infuriates people. You know? why, couldn't they, why, couldn't, why couldn't their ideals have just been pure?
1: We have a question coming in from the <laughs> Russell Kirk Center. The question is, to what extent did Edmund Burke's writings influence the American Revolution?
0: You know, I, I, I associate him much more with the French Revolution. Um,
1: Absolutely. Yeah,
0: and, and so I, I actually, I, I would say, I can tell you how much he influences me. I tend to be a Burkean. Um, I, I actually have a lot of sympathy for, for Edmund Burke's argument that, again, sort of looking at what happened with the French Revolution, uh, that uh, that extreme amount of change is dangerous. And I tell students, like, this is sort of the true definition to me of a conservative. Uh, Conservatives conserve, you know. It, it, it's not and not that change is bad, but that change can kind of get out of control really quickly. And of course, Burke, you know, he also was sentimental and he, you know, a bit of a chauvinist pig in a sort of 18th century gentlemanly kind of way. Uh, but I think that that you know that point is is still valid about uh, you know the abstract thinkers and uh, the French Revolution in particular really tended to go towards the abstract thinkers. In some ways, they were trying to do something far more ambitious than the American Revolution. They were trying to remake their entire society. Uh, And, you know, when the French Revolution started, pretty much everybody in America is cheering them on. I mean, it's kind of partly American arrogance. We thought that this ancient, incredibly sophisticated culture uh, was imitating us. Oh, they learned from us. They're they're following our ideals. No, they're not. Uh, But we thought so. Um, but everybody, even the Federalists, were wishing them well, you know, at the start. But then, you know, it goes off the rails, uh, and it gets really scary. Uh, and, you know, I think you can't underestimate, and I think it's weird for us thinking back, what incredible influence the French Revolution was on the U.S. early republic. I mean, England and France were the two 200-pound guerrillas in their world. Uh, we were following what was going on in France as closely as we were following the battles in our own revolution. Uh, and following political events in France that closely. Uh, and, you know, it, it really is, you know, at one point they basically banned Christianity. I mean, not yes. Catholicism, Christianity. Uh, and they killed priests. And, you know, a bunch of Protestants in America aren't exactly fond of priests, but still going after men of the cloth because they're men of the cloth is, you know, it, it, it's a truly radical, uh, rather terrifying thing that is happening. Uh, so, I, I, I usually, when I, when I explain, because I always have to explain, you know, liberal and conservative, two words. We're talking about words that change meaning. Uh, they're two words that are very hard to kind of pin down, but usually when I try to define conservatism in 18th century terms, I use Burke. Because to me, he's sort of a good, uh, it doesn't mean what it used to mean, you know, it's not the divine right of kings. The divine right of kings, uh, we always talk about Locke's second treatise uh, on government, and somebody, one of my students says, what happened to the first treatise? So no ever talks about the first treatise because the idea it was dispatching is gone. It dispatched it, uh, which was the divine right of kings. So by the 18th century, it's dead. You know, the, the, at least in the sort of the, the Anglo realm, it's, I, that's it's right. It's yep. right. yeah. Uh They've kind of moved. They've kind of moved on from that. And so I think for the 18th century, Burke is a good ex- explanation or a good representation of what does it mean to be a conservative. Another one I could use uh, is my my old boy uh, Thomas Hutchinson. When the Revolutionary Crisis starts, the Stamp Act, sort of, you know, like everybody was immediately on board with the French Revolution. When Stamp Act first hits in 1765, there's probably not a soul in America who thinks it's a good idea. Um, they're all appalled, including people who end up being arch loyalists. They're appalled financially. We're in the middle of a recession, just like England's in the middle of a recession. It's bad business but it's also an incredibly dangerous precedent. And everybody, including the future loyalists, see that. It's just bad precedent. For 150 years, you've never had a tax that was not involved in colonial legislatures. This could open a can of worms. But Hutchinson, and he's not the only one, but you know, I'm gonna use him. Basically, one of the big divides between people who become loyalists later and become patriots is more about strategy. He said, look, this is the way you do it. You write to parliament, you say, Oh, great, you know, you know we, we are humble and, and, and downtrodden subjects in America. Plead upon your, mani- your magnificence. Uh, you know, we are in a recession. You don't want to do this, do this out of out of the greatness of your heart. Will you please take pity on your downtrodden servants and not do this tax? And by the way, if you do this tax, we're not going to be able to buy your goods, and that's actually going to make your recession worse. So you're actually going to lose more money off of uh, trade, then you're going to get out of this peacefully. So this is just dumb. Don't do it. Um, And basically, the future patriot is, you have no right. And that's what Morgan was saying about that line in the sand. It was not about pleading as a privilege. It was, you know, we are citizens. We have rights. You have crossed the line. You have no right to do this. And when Parliament heard that, that was language they could never accept. Uh, You know, if, if you're challenging, they heard you're challenging our basic Authority as far as parliamentarians. Uh, but Hutchinson all the way through was saying, why did you have to open that particular can of worms? You know, if you wanted to get rid of the taxes, you know, you don't have to stand on great abstract principle. Going back to the Enlightenment, I think that's one thing that tended to separate Enlightenment thinkers, the, the people who were really dedicated to great abstract think, principles and the people who were sort of more pragmatic. Uh, America was generally known as more, the more pragmatic Enlightenment. You know, let's talk about you know what would make the cities better. Well, getting the streets cleaned up would be good. Philadelphia had an army of uh, of highly trained hogs that they released at night to clean up the streets <laughs> of Philadelphia. Uh, lighting it, setting up libraries. You had mentioned education, but these are the sort of called the practical Enlightenment. So, like, well, what do you do to improve human life? Uh, will improve it in practical terms, which is sort of different from what Rousseau was talking about, which tends to be a lot more metaphorical.
1: We've had some great questions. Shannon, is there anything else that you would like to mention before we wrap up?
0: Hopefully that this made any sense whatsoever. This is my first Zoom interview, so a very different different, uh, forum. I find that when I give my, and I don't know how it worked for you, I was last semester recording my lectures. Uh, and unfortunately, my audience was three cats. Um, and it, what I found every single time was a lecture that was supposed to be 100, an hour and 20 minutes long ended up being, an hour, uh, being two hours long because it's just, it's weird sort of talking into the ether. Uh, so um, hopefully, hopefully this, this uh, was enlightening uh, to your audience or at least amusing to your audience.
1: Well, I certainly enjoyed it. It's a fascinating topic. It's often a neglected topic. So thank you, Dr. Shannon Duffy, for just being a delightful guest on today's Live Lunch and Learn webcast. Viewers can now appreciate why your historical research and teaching open up a fascinating world to us, a foreign country, as it were, as we deal with all the challenges currently confronting our country today. We hope you'll come back and be my guest on a future webcast. And I invite those who tuned in to fill out a, a brief survey and let us know what you thought of today's program. Now, your host is gonna take a few days off over the 4th of July. We've been doing this since late March, and now we're gonna take a few days off. But I will resume our Lunch and Learn webcast at the same time, Thursday, July 9th, when my guest will be Krista Fernando, who is a recent biomedical sciences graduate of Grand Valley State University. And she's now also an alumna of our Hallenstein Center's Peter C. Cook Leadership Academy. Krista will tell us how faith has been pivotal to her development as a leader. So tell your friends and colleagues to listen in. And so till we have Krista on July 9th, stay tuned to all of our Hauenstein Center offerings and stay well. Beyond Aporia is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center for Presidential Studies at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. The theme music was composed by Andrew Whitney. The Hauenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's legacy of leadership and service. Our programs address many of the pressing issues that Americans face. To learn more about the Hallenstein Center, please visit us at www.gvsu.edu/hc. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. This is Gleaves Whitney.